We're very thankful today to be joined by the pastor of Holtz Perry Baptist Church, Mr. Colin Hirsch. Pastor Hirsch, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's good to be here. I was clued into the fact that you recently went on a mission trip to the Aleutian Islands, uh, of course, which are near Alaska, a part of Alaska, by Richard Blakely. And he suggested that I talk to you about it because it was quite a compelling story to him and might make a compelling story for my audience. So that's the topic of conversation today. Before we get into the meat of that, how long have you been the pastor at Holtz Perry Baptist Church? I've been the pastor uh, now since uh, 2001, so 20, 22 years uh, this summer. And have you gone into the mission field in various places in years past? I have. I've been uh, on several mission trips. I've been to uh, India, into West Africa, uh, several remote places in Mexico, um, and, and now, and now uh, uh, Eskimo Village in Alaska. Is it just simply the fulfilling of the Great Commission to you? Is that why you go out on mission trips, or is it something beyond that, as if that's not enough? No, and that to me, that's that's mainly it. I, I uh, you know, we have a, a close connection with the missionaries that we support at our church. Uh, we're kind of a unicorn, I guess, amongst um, amongst a lot of churches. We we practice what what we refer to as local church sponsored missions, meaning that the missionaries that we support financially. Uh, they answer to a local congregation rather than to a uh, mission agency or or uh, some kind of parachurch group. Uh, we find that pattern in the in the book of Acts in chapter thirteen, where Paul and Barnabas Paul and Barnabas were sent out of the church at Antioch, and and uh, then they returned after their missionary journey and reported to the church at Antioch, and you know basically our kind of our conviction is that God laid out a pattern. Uh, for mission work there, and and uh, we'd be awful prideful to think we could improve on it. And so, we we support missionaries who who visit our church that that are sponsored out of other other churches, other congregations. And so, we have a lot of missionaries that come through, and we 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 grow close to them. And uh, this particular trip was uh, I preached at a conference in Houston. Uh, a church there was hosting um, their version of a missions conference, and uh, what that means to them is they have a pastor that comes in over a weekend, a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and and uh, I was the key speaker for that conference, and and uh, then they had two missionary families there, and they just basically try to minister to those two missionary families. Uh, they just pour into their families and their spouses and uh, they take them shopping and, and uh, you know, the messages are geared towards, you know, trying to minister to those mission families. And it just so happened that one of those missionaries was uh, Brother Gary Hampton uh, in Alaska, who's a missionary that we've supported for many, many years financially. And I just sensed from uh, Brother Gary uh, that he was discouraged and uh, he uh, he he likes to. I mean, his burden is to visit the native villages. Uh, he wants to see churches planted in in uh, the native uh, 
villages and and uh, most of those were completely shut. They're isolated. And so they completely shut themselves off to visitors during COVID and he hadn't been able to visit any of them. And just, he just really was down. And uh, we had him uh, come and, and talk about his mission work a few weeks later at our church. And I just really, I mean, I could just tell he was discouraged and down, hadn't been into those villages since before COVID. And his wife's health has gotten worse since then. And he really needed a helper to go along with him to help with music and things like that. And so I just felt like it was, you know, it was something that I needed to do to be an encouragement to our missionary that we've supported. And that's kind of why I went on this particular trip. And and uh, it was actually the St. Lawrence Island, uh, which is directly south of the Bering Strait uh, and uh, southwest of Nome, about 130 miles. Now, of course, when people think and talk about Alaska, they always think about cold weather, but it's not always just brutally cold in Alaska. Certainly it is sometimes of the year, but what were you subjected to in that way while you were there? So we went the first week of June, or second week of June, and the low temperatures were uh, 25, 30 degrees, and the high was about 40 on the island. Um little bit warmer than that when we were in Nome uh, which is where you have to fly you fly into Nome and then from Nome to the St. Lawrence Island um, but uh, you know it was it was uh, you're wearing a jacket and a sock hat in, in, in when you're outside in the second week of June there I think they're having temperatures now in the mid 50s for their highs are the people that live in those uh, chain of islands do they speak a, a native tongue of some kind they do their uh, their native language is siberian yupik uh it's a dying language they're um, the older people speak the language uh not very many of the young people do they may know a little vocabulary uh you know that they've picked up but um you know they're 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 studying in the public schools in english and uh i mean they, they you don't they don't speak with an accent that's noticeable or anything like that, but uh, the older people do uh, do speak a Siberian Yupik. And interestingly, uh, there there are uh, you know it's only 30, 30 miles from Russia um, on that island, and, and uh, there are people groups in eastern Russia who who speak that same language. Who you know they're they were. Uh, Many of them were captives by the Russian people that would uh, come over and and uh, kidnap people and use them uh, as slaves in the in the mines in eastern Russia. But uh, they they maintained their their culture even uh, under uh, under servitude there. But uh, it's pretty interesting. Are these people that are living on the lower ends of the economic ladder, so to speak? Um. Yeah, that's an understatement. In uh, the unemployment on on the island is, I would say, ninety percent. Uh, Eight hundred and fifty people in the village of Savunga, which is where we visited. There, there are two villages on that island, uh, Savunga and no, I can't even recall the uh, name of the other one. But there's not a road between them. They're forty miles apart, and 
uh, we weren't able to go to the other other village. But uh, they they live a subsistence living. They're uh, they're fishermen. They they do uh, uh, the bottom fishing. Uh, it's like a it's like a long trot line. It's eighteen hundred feet long, and they'll uh, they'll catch halibut. Uh, and they can sell those, uh, but they live off of mainly walrus, seal, and whale uh, for their, uh, that, that that's 90% of their diet, uh, walrus, walrus, seal, and whale. And they uh, they do all that fishing in the Bering Sea in an 18-foot aluminum V-bottom boat with an outboard motor. It's incredible. Uh, the bravery that they have just to go out and try to, you know, try to eke out a living. Most of them are on some kind of a government subsidy of some, you know, some kind of help uh, to try to sustain them in their poverty. But the costs, the cost, you know, in Nome and in, in the outlying villages are just astronomical. I'll give you an example. We we took most of our food in because, you know, we were kind of, uh, you know, it, it's I know it's an insult to uh, not take the food. Of people who offer, offer, uh, you know, to feed in those situations, but uh, we uh, we were just kind of uh, afraid of sanitary situations. They hang that walrus meat, you know, outside, and then they let it ferment and rot. When the skin starts falling off, that's when they know it's ready to eat, and they eat it raw. So uh, we hauled all our food in, but we uh, we bought a, a 40, 40 bottles of water at the local grocery store it cost us sixty two dollars wow that is an incredible cost but i guess the remote uh, location of it helps drive up some of those costs of course and the, and the, the uh, poverty that i saw there is you know to me it, it, the living conditions were worse than anything i've ever seen that includes west africa remote places in India. Uh, it, it was just incredible to me. The, uh, and, and kind of the, you know, it's, it's, it angers me. Uh, we had church services the three days that we were there, four days we were there from at two o'clock in the afternoon and 10, 10 o'clock at night. And the reason we had them at those times was the building we were renting was the village hall. And from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. every day, I'm not sure who runs it, uh, but either the village or the tribal council or someone sells a product called a pull tab to the residents. And they're they're similar to an instant lottery ticket, but it's not it's not a lottery it's not it's not like a state lottery system. It's something that you know. If you were having a party, you could buy a box of these pull tabs, and if you sold them to people, you would make a twenty percent profit. I read, we read it right on the box there at the at the uh, community center, and uh, so somebody is selling these pull tabs to people, where the largest prize they can win is five hundred dollars. And what was incredible is these people in their poverty would come in there for six hours and just empty their pockets 
uh, buying these pull tabs. So, you know, they're getting money handed to them in one hand and they're take, taking it right back out of their other hand. And um, not really any hope for anything any more than, you know, a few extra dollars. Colin Hirsch is with us. He's the pastor of Holtz Perry Baptist Church, talking about his recent uh, travels to Alaska in the uh, mission field. Uh, so when you host these services there, do they look like a typical church service? Is there anything unique about them that is uh, done in order to try to help uh, spread the gospel to this unique group of people? You know, we weren't sure what to expect uh, going there. Uh, the missionary that, that I traveled with had been there one time before and had and had shared the gospel with a guy who after he left uh, this young man uh, made a profession of faith and and, and the missionary is trying to disciple him long long range you know uh, via the mail and the internet and so we weren't really sure what to expect when we got there um, and we had him uh, he just made some handwritten signs that said uh, live music uh, got, and gospel, live music and uh, and uh, gospel preaching um and and we just kind of waited for people to show up uh we had probably 20 to 30 people that that showed up for the services and and we we did uh music with a piano and a guitar and and uh, we had we had made some song books that we carried with us and just kind of sang some choruses and things like that um and then one of us, the three, the three of us that traveled together, one of us preached in each service. So it was similar to a, a, a church service that you would experience here. Just it was in a, you know, in a village hall, sitting at tables instead of pews. It was. Uh, we learned after we got there, there are three churches in the village. There is Presbyterian Church that is now closed. There is a Baptist Church that's now closed. And there is a Seventh-day Adventist church who uh, their pastor died eight years ago. And his widow has stayed in the in the community. She's from North Carolina. Uh, she stayed in the community and she leads in the services there on Saturday mornings. Uh, it's kind of interesting. She came in to uh, meet us when we first got there. And she said, I understand you guys do music and and uh, you know, I, and I'll speak for myself. I'm not very good at it, but uh, I can strum out a few songs on a guitar. And uh, she said, "We haven't had a live instrument in our services. We, I'd love for you to come and do our uh, music in our services tomorrow." And uh, my missionary friend, he immediately says, "Now you know we theological. We're not on the same page on several issues." And uh, she said, "I, I understand that." We talked about some of those differences that we have, and she said, "I'll just be honest with you." She said, "There, you know, I don't, she didn't use these exact words, but she said, we're, you know, we're the only show in town." And she said, "There are believers here who want to get together with other believers. They want to, they want to sing songs, and they want to hear the word of God read." And so we get together and we sing some hymns, and and I read some scriptures and try to encourage the people. And that's the only spiritual leadership that's taken place in that village of 850 people. Uh, she's now returned back to North Carolina for um, 
for shoulder reconstruction surgery and, and doesn't know when she's going to be able to go back. Her family really doesn't like the idea of her being there at her age with the lack of uh, medical care that's there. You know, they, they have a little clinic that they patch people up and fly them out to Nome, and then they have to fly from Nome to Anchorage or Fairbanks or somewhere like that to, to get to an actual hospital. Pastor, I once interviewed a man who was a frequent missionary to Africa, and uh, he had come back here to pastor a church, and he said that it was difficult for him to work with folks who had so much here in this country, yet still found, you know, things to essentially complain about. Um, After he had, you know, seen people in such difficult circumstances in other places that were seemingly more um, people after God's own heart, maybe be a way to describe it. Um, Do you ever experience those similar sorts of feelings after coming back from a, a mission field? Well, it's, it's, it's incredible to see that, uh, how grumpy people can be that have everything they ever wanted, uh, compared to the joy that people seem to have that they don't have anything. You know, I was in India one time and, and, uh, there were several of us pastors who were there and we sat down with some, some of the Indian Bible college students and kind of had a, uh, interview back and forth they asked us some questions we asked them questions and and one of the american pastors said what what do you all do for leisure and the missionary who was interpreting for us he said i'm not going to ask him that question and they said why he said because it would be an insult to them that you know so little about their culture he said they, they don't have time for leisure all of their waking hours are are devoted to trying to live and survive. He said they don't they don't have leisure, and uh, you know that, that's you you see that in places, and then you come home and you think, man, it's it's incredible that we. It, it always it always gives you a you know a gratitude for for what you have and and uh, kind of a lack of patience for people who don't have it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I- I, I think uh, your point very well made there, and one that is uh, shared by folks who do what you've done in terms of pursuing things in the mission field. Um, I'm not sure what else to ask about, but I guess one thing that I, generally speaking, not necessarily with the uh, Alaska trip, but is there a specific moment that stands out in your memory over all these years of going overseas in the mission field, a specific person that you helped lead to the Lord in one of these areas or something that kind of um, defines all your travels? Well, I, I, uh, I look back to a trip that I made to India. We were we were teaching in a, a Bible seminar that week. There were three of us pastors who went and visited a missionary that we supported, and, and he was advertised, he had advertised to preachers in India that there were going to be American pastors there to teach and there was about 400 preachers that showed up to go through this week long seminar and we just taught them various subjects and books of the Bible you know all day long for for five days and uh, then in the evening we had evangelistic services 
you know, humor doesn't always transcend culture. You know, you can try to tell a joke and it might make sense in America, but it doesn't make sense anywhere else. And, and uh, it's not funny anywhere else. And so I was, I was going to preach, you know, in India, they, they serve, uh-huh. serve uh, you know, the Hindus worship 300 million gods, which in my mind, I think how in the world could you remember, you know, who the gods were in that situation. But, um, I was going to be preaching and I, uh, one of the evangel- evangelistic services and I was trying to think of you know praying about what to what to preach on what passage of scripture to use and and all all of my mind I kept going back to uh, in the book of Acts where Paul was in uh, at Mars Hill and, and he he said he saw the altar with the inscription to the unknown God in the, in, to the Athenian in Athens and uh, you know they were a people of many gods and and they were worshiping the unknown God. And he said, you know, I saw this inscription the all, to, to the unknown God whom you ignorantly worship. And he said, him, him de- declare I unto you. And he goes back to creation and he, he preaches, you know, the God of the Bible to them. And, uh, you know, I was trying to think of an illustration or just some kind of a, you know, attention getter that I could use to uh, start uh, the, my message. And, and couldn't think of anything, and and so they had this guy get up and give his testimony before I preached. And uh, he and his wife had struggled with fertility and were wanting to have a child. And you know, in our culture, that's a hard thing. Uh, but we don't we don't look at a woman here in the United States who doesn't have a child and think, well, God's cursed her. You know, but that's what they feel like there in India. You know, if, if they can't have a child, then the curse of God is on them. It's, it's something they've done wrong is why they can't have a child. And so they were distraught about their uh, barrenness. And so they they began uh, worshiping a God of fertility. And I don't remember what, what the worship required. Uh, but then she got pregnant and they started worshiping a God that's supposed to protect the child in the womb. And uh, one of them required that they fasted during the daylight hours. So they, don't, they only ate in the dark, you know, in the darkness uh, during that pregnancy. And they lost that child. And and they started worshiping a different God of fertility. And they, they got pregnant again. And same deal, you know, they're, they're trying to appease these angry gods. And, and they lost the second child. And uh, so... They had decided they were going to take their own lives. And as the man was walking to buy some drugs that they could take uh, to end their life, he found a gospel tract on the ground. He opened it up and he read it. It had an address of a church on it. And so he went, looked that church up, talked to the the pastor that was there, uh, who led him to the Lord, led him to faith in Christ. And he went home and got his wife and they went back and, and they opened the Bible and shared the gospel with her. And then both of them got saved. And almost nine months to the day later, they gave birth to a healthy baby girl. And he held her up there in front of the congregation. He said, this is our grace. And uh, she was about four years old. Wow. And, uh, here, you know, here I thought, well, I, I was trying to think of something I could say to introduce the unknown God to these people, and uh, I don't I don't think I have to do that. You know, that, to me, that was just uh, God working in, 
through all of that years beforehand, providing an illustration for me to, you know, open up the scriptures and share that with them. But um, this last trip in Alaska, uh, we went to uh, kind of a survey one day to uh, visit uh, visit a village called Teller. You know, you've probably heard this phrase before. There's no roads to Nome. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so you can't drive to Nome, Alaska. You have to fly there. And there's about, I think, 200 miles of, of road system that go out of Nome, but you can't you can't get in a car in Anchorage and drive to Nome. You just can't do it. It's a wilderness. And uh, so we drove out to this village called Teller, and uh, it's a 250 people. Uh, they have no running water and no sewage in their homes or their public school. Uh, they use the bathroom in honey pots. Uh, they have a city employer, village employee that comes around to the house and the school and picks up the honey pots every day and takes them out to the dump. Um, you know, it, it was it angers me to think that we, you know, as a government, we send billions of dollars to nations overseas who who would like to see us wiped off the map. And then we can't figure out how to provide running water to our own citizens in uh, those villages. But uh, while we were there, uh, we went into the mayor's office and we we're talking to the handful of people who were there. And, uh, and my uh, friend Gary, he's, uh, I mean, he is a bulldog when it comes to uh, evangelism. He just wants to know if you know where you're going to go when you die. When he meets you, if you spend 10 or 15 minutes talking to him, he's going to come to the place where he says, do you have assurance that when you die, you're going to spend eternity in heaven? <laughs> he's just that kind of person, you know. And uh, so he's talking to this man in the mayor's office, and the, the guy said, uh, listen, I know everything you're going to say. He said, I was in, I think it was Nashua, New Hampshire, uh, for four years on a construction job. He said, I, I was part of a... a fundamental Baptist church there and he said I heard the gospel and he said I made a profession of faith I was baptized and, and uh, he uh, he strayed in his faith since he returned home but you know one of the things that hit me is here I am in this remote village I drove 70 miles down this road out of Nome to this place where there's no church well they have a Lutheran church building there in that village, but no, it's not open. They don't have a service there. They have a, they call him a Lutheran priest. I don't think Lutherans actually call their pastors priests, but I'm assuming they called him that because he wears like the priestly garb, uh, a robe or something. But uh, they said the Lutheran priest from a neighboring village would come by boat uh, to do funerals and weddings. And the last time he had been there for an actual church service was at Easter. So, here in this village, there's no church services, nothing going on. But you know what struck me was, here's a guy who's made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ living in this village. And, you know, as we were driving out of there, I thought, you know, if if all of us, all, all the people who are in the world who profess faith in Christ, if we would just do what God's asked us to do in that and by that I mean telling people about what Jesus has done in our own life there wouldn't be anybody in the world who had, hasn't heard the gospel 
Yeah, you know, it's, it's like every nook and cranny of the world that you go into, you find somebody who's a professing believer in Christ. And the the, the sad thing is that you know they're like, uh, oh, who, who, I'm drawing a blank now. The the uh, they begged the body of Jesus after it was Nicodemus and uh, Joseph of Arimathea. The Bible says up until that point they were secret disciples. And uh, you know I I don't think I don't think uh, you can be a a uh, you can't live out your Christian faith and be a secret disciple. It's just impossible. Uh, and uh, you know if we just speak up about the the truth of the gospel and, and just to be able to tell somebody what God did for me, you know before. Before I met Jesus, I was this, or I did this. But then God did this, you know. And you know, we tell people that He died for us, and 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 now I am this. You know, that's it. You know, it's a fifteen-second testimony. Before I met Jesus, I was this, and but then God did this in my life, and now I'm this. And uh, you know, we just quite simply we just fail to do it. And uh, that's very, very true. Uh, we've been visiting today with uh, Colin Hirsch. He is the pastor at Holtz Prairie Baptist Church about uh, his recent visit to Alaska and then also previous visits to Indiana, Africa as a part of a series of interviews we've been doing about folks who are working in the mission fields. Um, pastor, as we wrap things up here, is there anything else that... Uh, you have over the horizon? Are you, are you planning on other mission trips this uh, year, or is this just sort of an annual thing for you? Well, our church has uh, some money budgeted uh, for mission trips for, for me or other people in our church who, who uh, and, t- and mainly what, what we want to do is we want to visit the missionaries that we support and uh, kind of be an encouragement to them. And so I don't have any trips actually scheduled right now, I'm I'm uh, been in contact with this lady from Alaska in the last couple of weeks, just kind of uh, feeling out uh, the possibilities of taking a group of young people uh, back to that village next year and doing a like a vacation Bible school and trying to encourage the kids uh, to be there. Uh, just kind of an interesting story. We would go into the village hall each night about 15 minutes before they finished selling these pull tabs. And I'm sitting there the last night we're there and I've got the guitar on my hip and I'm trying to remember the chords to Lord, I lift your name on high. And I hadn't taken a chord sheet up there. And so I'm sitting over there just kind of in the corner of the room strumming, you know, and kind of mouthing the Lord, I lift your name on high, you know, and uh, I'm slowly figuring out the chords to it and as I started playing it the one guy who went with us who's a music minister in Garland, Texas he said Colin look that lady is singing this song and he said and that, and that one over there he pointed to another he said and she's singing it and uh, so I started watching all I was doing I wasn't even really singing I was just kind of mouthing the words and here's a handful of people across the room who are sitting there pulling these pull tabs open and they're singing Lord I lift your name on high Lord I love to sing your praises and uh, so I started playing it and just lightly singing it 
And the next thing I know, he said, look. And he points to the lady who's selling the tickets is back there in the back doing the hand motions to the song. Hmm. And I stopped and I said, hey, I said, do you guys know this song? And they said, everybody in this village knows that song. And evidently, in the 90s, there was a group called YWAM, uh, Youth with a Mission, uh, who traveled around to these Eskimo villages and did vacation Bible schools. And I was blown away at uh, how many of these people, middle-aged people, were sitting there singing these songs that I used to lead my youth, you know, 25 years ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, it stuck with them. And uh, just, you know, the Bible says, you know, uh, Paul planted the seed, Apollos watered the seed, and God gave the increase. And so, you know, we tried to plant some seed while we were there in June, and I'm sure we watered some seed that somebody else had already planted, and, and uh, we're just trusting God that he'll give the increase. Colin Hirsch has been our guest today from Holtz Prairie Baptist Church. He's a Ducoin native that moved to Pinckneyville, and they've forgiven him since. <laughs> but in any case thank you so much for the time and thank you for sharing your story with us thank you Will I appreciate it